Every year, we bring together a group of incredible people for three days of conversation and networking at the Code Conference. This year, Code is back in Los Angeles, and I'll be speaking with the people at the forefront of tech, including European tech regulator Marguerite Vestager, Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella, and Google CEO Sundar Pichai. And we've just announced that Disney CEO Bob Iger will be joining me on stage for a live interview about what comes next for one of the world's biggest media companies. And fine, I guess we can talk about Baby Yoda, too. If you're an executive, you can apply to attend the Code Conference at events.recode.net slash code, or just tap the link to the application in the show notes. Hope to see you there. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, Editor-at-Large of Recode. You may know me as someone starting a traveling Wilbury-style supergroup of Vox podcasters, but in my spare time, I'm just a reporter and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power, change, and the people you need to know around tech and well beyond. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is a longtime colleague of mine, Ezra Klein, co-founder of Vox, the host of the wonderful podcast called The Ezra Klein Show. Uh, he also does the weeds. You do lots of things. And we're part here- Part of your traveling podcast Yes, band. part of my traveling podcast band. And we're here uh, today in my studio to talk about his new book, Why We're Polarized, which kind of says it all. That's all we have to say. I want to find out why. It's about how American politics became a toxic system, why we participate in it, and what it means for our future. Ezra, welcome to Recode Decode again. Thank you. We, we've talked a bunch we, of times. We, we've done this we've before. We've done this before. And I just want to talk a little bit about sort of where, let's talk about the current state. We're taping this in advance of the book coming out. Mm-hmm. And so we're this we're right right now this week, the Iran thing is happening, all kinds of stuff. So we're not going to talk about the current news because it'll be long, something will have happened by then, yes. presumably. But talk a little bit about what got you writing this. You had been a, a very early critic of President Trump. You made a series of videos, my kids still talk about them, um, about why he was dangerous and stuff like that. And you talked a lot about the polarization. Mm-hmm. That was sort of in the background of everything you talked about is the, is the public discourse. So talk about sort of the beginnings of why you decided to write this, because it's a topic you write a lot about. So so it has been um, motivating a lot of my work for a long time. So let me actually go back before Trump, because I think a mistake we make a lot of the time is to 
understand Trump as some kind of completely separate phenomena from mm-hmm. Barack Obama. Twitter, tw- right? Trump Twitter. Trump right. Twitter. Right. I mean, he seems like he, Trump so often seems like the antimatter to Obama's matter mm-hmm. that people have a tendency to, to cut them. But this book um, was in a different form, but I, I, I initially started it in the Obama era. Mm-hmm. And it was motivated by my background is as a policy reporter. So I covered things like healthcare and the economy and the mm-hmm. financial crisis. And I had the same experience every single time. There would be the beginning of one of these debates. They decide they're going to do healthcare reform or they're sure. going to try to you Very know, do something on taxes. But it wouldn't start that way. What would happen at the beginning, and you, you were at the Washington Post, so you've mm-hmm. seen this a bunch of times. You would go into these think tanks or conferences or you go talk to the members of the relevant congressional committee. And at that moment, the beginning, everybody could imagine some way that everybody could be happy with the outcome, right? Mm-hmm. Like the healthcare system is bad and maybe not – we don't all get everything we want, but there's some positive, some outcome. And then sure. you would go through the process and by the end, it would resolve down to this basically are you a Democrat or are you a Republican question. Mm-hmm. So everything collapses from positive sum to zero sum. Mm-hmm. And so – in the Obama era, I became very obsessed with that process, right? What Because it, it defined everything so much more than the details of policy did or than messaging did or than anything else. And it so really I was, goes back to the Clinton administration. It goes way back. I mean, mm-hmm. the, this is all has deep roots, but it, it's been getting worse every year. Yeah. Like a, a, a number that I find really powerful is Bill Clinton was in polling, the most polarizing president we've ever had, mm-hmm. until George W. Bush was, mm-hmm. who held that crown, until Barack Obama who ran on taking down polarization, mm-hmm. took it from him, and now, of course, Donald Trump. is So every president right. of both parties, very, very different political styles, they keep becoming the most polarizing president well, we've ever you know, had. Interesting. So something structural we get to Obama, I think you could go back to the Reagan administration because that was the first when you started to get the, not just the Tea Party people, but Newt Gingrich, to me, was the moment. Was that when, it, when it became articulated, you know, uh, that no, the no, mm-hmm. the we're going to br- burn it all down kind of attitude. That's what I remember. And the Reagan administration, in a lot of ways, with James Watt and all kinds of people, were the beginning of maybe we don't all get along. Maybe mm-hmm. we don't in that way. But, of course, that goes back way back with civil rights and, and the Civil War, FYI. Civil but, rights so, is a huge part of the right, story, I right. think. Okay, um, so let's talk but about Gingrich that. is a good example of someone who I think a lot of books about polarization frame him as a key player. And I think he is really one of the key innovators in, in, in how to polarize a country. But the thing is that I think a mistake of a lot of political reporting is we get very caught up on individuals. Mm-hmm. I think the question is somebody like Newt Gingrich is why was the soil there for him to grow in? Yes. Right? Why did they – why did perhaps Republicans want Newt Gingrich to be their speaker? Why did they follow him into the kinds of behavior that he did? Mitch McConnell's the same way. I mean Mitch McConnell has nothing like the personality of Newt Gingrich, right? Mm-hmm. Newt Gingrich is bombastic. He's loud. He wants everybody to think he's the smartest person in the room. Mitch McConnell's a very quiet, calculating turtle of a human being. Mm-hmm. But even with that, he's – Done. He has built on what Gingrich started and found much more in some ways confrontational and aggressive tactics of first obstruction and then mm-hmm. um, protecting Donald Atwater. Trump yeah. and so on. Yeah. So something is happening behind all this, right, in the system that is creating these people and making them the ones who prosper in it, which is not true necessarily 50 years ago. Right, let me take you back a little further mm-hmm. and then I want to get into the, what you're talking about, the Obama. I want to get back to that. Is 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 You're saying something's in the soil. Yes. Maybe it is the soil. It Maybe, is the soil. You know what I mean? From the beginnings of our mm-hmm. the, of this country. So, yes. So, let me put two things that I think are going to be Mm -hmm. really important here as kind of the foundations of this. One is that 
we have a very distinctive political system. It's not what you see in other countries. When we invade other countries, we don't give them our system. Mm -hmm. And the reason is our system is known to be unstable. We're the only country that has done a system like this successfully for a long period of time. And that is we have branches of government that have separate forms of democratic legitimacy. Um, Mitch McConnell was elected to be Senate Majority Leader. At the same time, Barack Obama was elected as the president of the Mm -hmm. United States. And so you have a system where you actually require a lot of compromise to get anything done. Mm -hmm. Um, It is built into the structure. That's not how it is in like the UK where if you control the government, that means almost by definition you have a majority. You can actually govern. So we have a system that requires a lot of compromise to govern. But then the thing that made that work in America for a long time was we had these very unusual mixed political parties. And this goes way back, as you're saying, way back into our history. Mm -hmm. But I'll focus here on the like the post-Civil War period because what you had was a Republican Party that because it had invaded the American South, like that was the beginning of the Republican Party, it was completely locked out electorally of the South. And so the Republican Party in some ways was conservative, but it had a lot of liberals in it. The American South was very conservative ideologically, but it was very democratic because it hated Republicans because Republicans had invaded and occupied it. And so what you had was this weird political system, which a lot of political scientists will argue was really a four-party system. You had Southern Dixiecrats, you had Democrats who were more liberal, you had liberal Republicans and conservative Republicans. And that meant that a lot of a lot of the disagreements happen inside parties. And when they happen inside parties, they get dealt with either through compromise or suppression. Parties don't like to air out their mm-hmm. disagreements. And I want to say something super important here because like, this is a big pet peeve of mine. Polarization is not necessarily bad, and what preceded it was not necessarily good. When we had a very depolarized system in the 20th century, the one of the ways it remained depolarized was Democrats let their Southern bloc block all action on civil rights, mm-hmm. on anti-lynching laws, on um, voting rights laws for a very long time. It was only once that blockage was broken with the Civil Rights Act that you began to have this huge shift where the Republican Party became the conservative party, the Democratic Party became the liberal party. African-Americans and non-white voters in general shifted way over to the Democratic Party. White voters shifted way over to the Republican Party. And you began sorting the parties such you created the conditions for very high levels of polarization. Mm -hmm. So this was started when this happened. So, again, getting back to, you know, when you look at political discourse before, it was ugly. Like, I literally am still reading the Hamilton book 20 years later. You know, I literally (laughs) listen, read it very slowly. But it's the same. You know, they made a musical out of that. I know that. I saw that. I, I, I caught up on what happened to him and it didn't end well. Um, but this is, again, a feature of our culture. Like, you watch Hamilton go at it with Madison mm-hmm. and Jefferson. It's not pretty. It's polarized. I would say very polarized by this similar issues. Similar, like, they're not so—or the Whiskey Rebellion or whatever. Like, it's almost coming apart at the seams at all times. So this is, a, I think, an, an important point. It is not more bitter now. It's not more divisive, but it's more polarized. Okay, and so this, explain what you mean yeah. by polarized. So Define why— Polarization are... just means that things are clustering around two poles, right? Mm-hmm. It's like a term from magnets. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and so one of the things that's confusing in American politics is people look back and they say, well, I mean, like, just forget even Hamilton, right? Think about the 60s. Mm-hmm. We had, saw the assassinations Boy, of right. JFK, of mm-hmm. RFK, of Martin Luther King, of Malcolm X. Somebody, um, uh, Lynn Fromm, right, Squeaky mm-hmm. Fromm, Tried held a, like a 
like a gun an arm's length from Gerald Ford. It just didn't mm-hmm. fire. Ronald Reagan mm-hmm. was shot in the lung. We had urban riots. We had mm-hmm. protesters killed at Kent State. The idea that like American politics was not um, divisive then is ridiculous. It was mm-hmm. much more divisive than it is now. If things yeah. were coming apart. There was violence in the streets. Mm-hmm. The thing was the divisions weren't sorted by party in the way they are now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what happened is that the parties and the political system in a way absorbed a lot of conflict from the American conversation, culture, etc. And it either suppressed some of it and it tried to work some other parts of it towards compromise. There are very important things that it didn't allow any action on. I mentioned civil rights, but you can come up with a lot of others. So and we'll so put those off till tomorrow. Yeah, then. so there are good parts and bad parts to it. A lot of bad parts, which I, again, think get underplayed. The difference now is not that it is we are like a divided country now and we weren't before. It's that the divisions stack on top of party. And so now what um, American politics does is it absorbs a country that in many ways is actually not that divided given Mm -hmm. what our past has been. I mean, you mentioned things like the Whiskey Rebellion. We used to have armed rebellions in Mm -hmm. this country pretty often. Mm -hmm. We don't, thank God, have as much of that now. But if you imagine pasting that level of like underlying division on this kind of politics, that's where I think you should get genuinely scared. If you try to imagine the 60s in this country with today's political system, not that era's political system, that's where I wonder if we really have the capacity to survive a genuine period of true conflict. Well, you say that people do agree on a lot of things. And when you Mm -hmm. do see poll after poll, like on gun control, like everyone agrees on this, everyone agrees on that, everyone, you know, it's really interesting to watch there aren't people in the streets fighting hand-to-hand combat. There's not a lot of that, although there's a lot of noise about doing that. Like, mm-hmm. you see a lot of, I'm going to, if someone, like, there was a story in the Washington Post today, they take my guns, I'm going to shoot people. I'm like, are you? Is that really what's going to, like, is that what's going to happen, or is it just this sort of massive ability for people to communicate? And that's why it seems more polarized. One of the things that's tricky in the polarization debate, and I try to unwind a lot of this in my book, is that, We use it as one word when it can refer to a lot of different things. So you can be polarized on policy, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So if, you know, if we're very polarized over gun control, like that's one thing. You can be polarized on party. That's called effective polarization. How do you feel about your party? How do you feel about the other party? You can be polarized by demographic dimensions. There are a lot of different ways to be polarized. And I I really want to emphasize something you said. I don't think the evidence is that we're all that polarized on policy. Mm -hmm. What we've become much more polarized on is party. Mm -hmm. And so that's why when you have something like gun control, what will happen is that an issue where it seems like there is agreement, by the time it gets into the parties, what it ends up being is are Democrats or Republicans going to win? Right? right? Like, who is going to be able to run around the country saying that either we've been super successful or they've been totally unsuccessful, vote them mm-hmm. out? And so one of the things that this kind of party polarization does is it almost retroactively polarizes anything that comes into the spotlight. Right, anything. So, so something that I think is, a, is an unusual dimension of this is that it actually implies that in divided government, if you want something to happen, if you really care about an issue, what most people want to have happen when they care about an issue is like, the president should give a speech. And we know there's a lot of evidence on this. When the president gives a speech, what happens immediately after is not that the country becomes convinced, but that his side becomes more convinced and the other side becomes um, more opposed. Mm-hmm. And so oftentimes, if you want something to pass in a period that is divided, like the current period, what you actually want is for it to stay out of the spotlight so it doesn't become identified with either party. Right. Things can pass in the background, mm-hmm. but they can't pass in the foreground. Right, because nobody ha- so then you have to have an opinion. This is good. Like, I'm looking at the Iran stuff, even though it's going to come in a couple of weeks, is that Immediately, it was like, 
it's not whether it was a good thing to do or not. It's that he did it and yep. the way he did it, and which I would have to agree. It's really unusual what right. happened here. Which is a reasonable heuristic. I mean, right. this is, I think, a, a key thing. This is what parties are supposed to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, we can't, like none of us, I'm, I'm, I'm a professional political journalist. I can't have a truly informed opinion on the unbelievably vast range of issues American politics ends up encompassing. I mean, mm-hmm. a week ago, we were talking about trade deals and impeachment. This week, we're talking about Iran. And mm-hmm. I mean, just before I came in here, Donald Trump is threatening to bomb cultural sites, which is, mm-hmm. let's be very clear, a war crime. Um, and then, you know, who knows where we're going to be in three weeks when, mm-hmm. w- when this comes out. And so what people do is that they end up attaching to a party, at least in theory, because that party shares their values. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then they say, I trust you as this party to implement my values um, in ways that I wouldn't know how to do. But then the problem is the parties are self-interested. The parties mm-hmm. want to gain power. The parties are locked in conflict with one another. So they can't let the other side do anything. They can't let the other side do anything. And that is rational. Like mm-hmm. I, one of the parts of the book that I think is going to be a little bit controversial for people who see themselves as more on my mm-hmm. side is I talk about Mitch McConnell and the Merrick Garland situation at, mm-hmm. at some length. And I think one of the really hard questions about that for people to face up to is it in some way, what did Mitch McConnell do wrong? Mm-hmm. Um, his voters didn't want him to let liberals take over the Supreme Court. He didn't invent a new power. He actually had the votes in the Senate. Mm-hmm. We've been asking for a very long time um, members of, of, of political parties on the Supreme Court specifically, which is a very, very important vote, to vote on that non-ideologically. Antonin Scalia passed with a unanimous consent mm-hmm. by the Senate, for instance. And I think a lot of people look back on that as a mistake. But the reason it was happening for a long time, and there's a great chart about this in the book, for a very long time, Supreme Court nominees didn't vote predictably. Mm-hmm. Democrats often ended up being quite conservative. Yes, Republicans did. ended up being very liberal. Mm-hmm. Both parties saw that as a failure. And so that stopped. But as that stopped and they began vetting their nominees very ideologically, that became an ideological vote. Mm-hmm. And as it became an ideological vote, now it actually makes a lot of sense if you care about governing, if you care about getting things done. I mean, in theory, if you're attached to your party for a good reason, the fact that you're stopping the other party from doing anything, like, that is either going to stop them from doing bad things, or even if you're just making them a failure, it gets you back into the majority so you can do good things. Right. So there's a deep, and this is one of the arguments of the book, polarization isn't like a bad, just a bad thing people are doing because they're jerks. It has a very deep rational basis to it, such that people are making decisions that make sense for them. It's just collectively we're tearing the system to shreds. All right. So I want to in the next section I want to talk about what we do when we have a polarized because then nothing gets done. Presumably Mm -hmm. that you're sort of the you're in an endless sharks versus jets kind of situation. This is a West Side Story reference, Um, but there's no way to come to terms, or maybe there is secretly behind the scenes because some things have passed. Some Some things things have. So so what you're really talking about is why we're polarized is why we're politically polarized, right? And not polarized as a people. I mean, the the thing I will say is that we are becoming, what's the right way to put this? The political polarization, one of the things that is unusual and I think worrying about it is that it is absorbing other forms of polarization. Mm -hmm. So the big idea here is, which you'll find in political science stuff, is between um, cross-cutting and stacked identities. Mm -hmm. So Maybe, like, go back to, say, the 60s. Maybe you're a Democrat and you're a union member, but you live in the South and you're an evangelical and mm-hmm. you live in a rural area. Mm-hmm. And kind of like I can, like, go through and you can imagine somebody who has some identities that lean Republican, some identities that lean Democratic, 
but they pull you in both directions. And so, you know, that's a kind of person, fast forward a couple decades, who might look at George W. Bush and say, yeah, you know, I'm a Democrat and he's not, but I'm an evangelical and I'm a rural guy and Mm -hmm. I kind of like, I kind of get him. But what has happened, and this is genuinely different, like this is a way in which the fact that the parties have the same names actually ends up confusing people about how different they've become. What has happened is that we've stacked all that. And so now the parties feed in uh, the density of the place you live in. There's no place in America that Mm -hmm. is more dense than 900 people per square uh, mile Mm -hmm. that is Republican anymore. Every big city is Democratic. Racially, we've become much more polarized. You used to have a lot of black Republicans. Famously, Jackie Robinson was a Republican. I mean, the Republican Party, again, was the party that had fought Mm -hmm. the Civil War. Um, Now, uh, the Democratic Party is, I believe, it's 45 percent non-white or was in the last election. And the Republican Party is over 90 percent white. That's Mm -hmm. a huge difference. The parties didn't used to be split very much by religion. Now, the biggest religious group in the Democratic Party is people who don't have a religious affiliation at all, whereas Republican Party is overwhelmingly Christian. There's a whole psychological set of dimensions we've sorted on, which didn't used to be true. Liberals tend to like be high in this sort of psychological measure called openness to experience, Republicans high in conscientiousness. So you now have like the parties are psychologically quite different from each other. And I could kind of keep going on like that. Mm-hmm. But the issue is now that it's absorbing all these other cleavages. And so I'll give just one example of how this plays out that I think is interesting. So there was a, a political scientist in Michael Tesler who went back and looked at racialized controversies and how they polled by party. So in the 90s, when you had things like the Bernard Getz trial mm-hmm. in New York, the O.J. Simpson trial, right, the O.J. Simpson trial, <laughs> there's no difference in how Republicans and Democrats felt about these things. They were controversial, but not politically um, mm-hmm. polarized. Now, if you poll, um, this was a couple years ago, so the Zimmerman trial Edward around Trayvon Martin, um, the uh, whether 12 years a slave should win an Oscar mm-hmm. um, was another one. These were incredibly polarized by party because the Democratic Party had become the party of racial liberalism and the Republican Party the party of racial conservatism Mm -hmm. in a much more clear and distinct way than had been true before. Mm -hmm. So that escalates the set of conflicts that the party split over. So it's making us, the level to which we are politically polarized and the number of other identities that is kind of enlisted into itself Mm -hmm. has made us more polarized on things that we would have a couple years ago thought of as non-political. And everything is political. And everything, I mean, the NFL is another great example, right? There was a, the, um, Colin Kaepernick um, began kneeling, then Donald Trump got involved, and so there was this polling that showed prior to 2016, Republicans and Democrats had the same level of favorability towards the NFL, and then Republican uh, approval of the NFL plummeted. Plummeted. All right. So everything's political. Is or what can you're become saying. political. So you're yes. essentially saying everything has become political. All right. When we get back, let's talk about what it means in the age of social media and technology, because that certainly amplifies and yep. weaponizes it in lots of ways. We're here with Ezra Klein. He's the co-founder of Vox, and his new book is called Why We're Polarized. He's going to talk about that when we get back. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. 
Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. We're here with Ezra Klein from Vox. He's the author of Why We're Polarized. Do you feel like you've been polarizing? Yes. Talk about that. Because I remember your videos at the time were quite, I was like, whoa, he's out on a limb here. Like, I was pretty anti-Trump, but not the way you were. You know, I'm certainly become that way. I think I was right about that. Yeah, I think you were. <laughs> but w- we talk about that because have you become more yes. polarizing? So this and, is— a- And pe- when people introduce, they're like, Ezra Klein, that guy, he's a liberal. And I was like, no, he's really actually quite reasonable. Like, it's really— Liberals they, can be reasonable. No, I know, but it's really interesting <laughs> the people's reaction to you who are conservative to yes. you, which is um, really— I, I don't polar- know why they're coming after—not coming after me, but they're definitely— it's I'm, really interesting. I'm polarizing. There's no doubt about it. And one of the – there are a couple of pieces to this. And I think about it. This is actually part of what motivates the book. Like mm-hmm. the book is really attempting to describe a system that I am in and part of and right. trying to describe not just how it works but how it works on top of me, how it works on you, um, how it works on all of us. And so one thing about it is that as American politics becomes more polarized, as the parties become more different from each other, just describing reality becomes itself more polarizing. Mm-hmm. You were mentioning my Donald Trump videos. Mm-hmm. When Mitt Romney was running for president, I disagreed with Mitt Romney on a lot of mm-hmm. different political policy yes, measures. Did. As you mentioned, I'm a liberal. Um, but I respected Romney a lot as a human being. I won an online news association award for what I think of as a very, very sympathetic profile of him, looking at the ways in which uh, his kind of background as a management consultant was really the core of his politics. Mm -hmm. I've heard I had good relationships on the Romney campaign, so on and so forth. The Republican Party, again, for reasons related to things we're talking about, ends up moving towards Donald Trump. Describing the reality of Donald Trump accurately is polarizing. Um, To people who like Donald Trump, it is going to sound like you're attacking them. Donald Trump is a liar. He is bigoted. I mean, these things are, I can't get away from saying what is true. I don't think that's a good way to to do my job. You know what I say to people? You have a bad boyfriend. Everyone knows you have a bad boyfriend. <laughs> I think boyfriend. there's something to that. You know what? It's a bad boyfriend. You can you still love him, but he's a bad boyfriend. And then everyone gets it. So one of the the things about being in a more polarized system is that it will make everybody in it more polarized and more polarizing because the choices are further apart. Because mm-hmm. when you're looking over that divide, uh, the line I have in the book is that, like, it's easier to be in the middle of a muddle than a chasm. Back mm-hmm. when the parties had – the Democrats had conservatives, Republicans had liberals. People could see themselves a little bit in both parties. Right, that's um, right. You know, and so now that they can't, everybody is more polarizing on the other side because a set of disagreements is, is deeper and, it, and, and it's bigger. And then the it, other thing I'll just say on this is – and I think we should talk about the media because I think it's a big right. part of it. But the incentives in the media now are to be a lot more polarizing mm-hmm. um, compared to – 
you know, if you used to write for the New York Times or the Baltimore Sun in the era of, like, the no- local newspaper monopoly, the newspaper's interest was to get everybody, right, yes, and to offend yes. nobody. And so on the yeah. one hand, that made it sometimes hard to tell the truth. Right. Because, like, you had to be very cautious in how you wrote. Or and fair. There, so there much is formalism. a big, like, fair. I think oftentimes fair— I agree. I'll, we'll go into yeah, that. Yeah, we can go in into that. But the flip of that, and I say this as somebody who, you know, co-founded Vox and, you know, mm-hmm. has done a lot of new media— I think that the incentives of new media are to be extremely polarizing because you're competing in an intentionally competitive space for people who have their minds very made up. Or, or may mm-hmm. argue against it, I would Please. say not necessarily. I think it's you, you're done with the bullshit part. Like, I remember thinking, like, I, I talk about this a lot, but at the Wall Street Journal, we had the, uh, um, you know, sort of the on the other hand um, paragraph that yep. you had to do and everyone um, had to say, to be fair or to be sure. To be sure was yep. the expression they like to use in the Wall Street Journal. To be sure, some people say blank. And so in every story you wrote, you'd have to have the to be sure sentence. And I always was like, why the hell do we need that sentence? I remember thinking at the time, it was writing about web van or something like that. And I was like, this is a four-alarm disaster. Can I just say that? Well, you had to find someone to quote, and then you yep. had to have an evening quote. And it was sort of in the culture of press to do that, like on mm-hmm. one hand, on the other hand. And what happened was the right wing, especially New Greeners, walked right into that and took it. Yep. And so did Fox News. Fair and balanced. Well, why? But their fair part was really like racist and awful. And you're sort of like, wait a minute. Why do we have to listen to their side when it's wrong? And I remember during the gay, the, the, a lot of the gay stuff, my uncle, one of my uncles or some relative, I don't know, it was a cousin, was like, who was a, a Southern Christian evangelical, it said, you know, half, uh, you know, what is it? Half the country isn't for gay marriage or something like that. And I said, how did you lose that other half? Because you used to have 100%. And he was like, what? I said, you've lost. Like, it was interesting. It was just, it was, it's kind of an interesting thing of people shifting and being taken advantage of. And so I don't think necessarily that it's wrong to be polarized. I don't either. Necessarily. You know what I mean? Like and the reality is often polarizing. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why one of the arguments I make in the book is that, look, I think in a lot of ways it would be better if we were able to ratchet down certainly uh, a lot of forms of partisan identity polarization, but mm-hmm. I don't think we can. And we can mm-hmm. talk about why and the conveyor belts of it mm-hmm. and the feedback loops and all of it. But what you want to be able to do is have a country that you can govern even amidst polarization. Right. And you can do that. That's how a lot of other countries right, work. We're going to get to that at the end. But talk about like, the, the idea is like, isn't it just people telling the truth? Now, I don't mean to sound like Donald Trump, but sometimes he's sort of saying what a lot of people think, right? Even if it's ill-conceived and ill-informed. So, like, what's wrong with actually saying what you— like, I think some people would think polarization isn't that. It's that I've had enough of— trying to get along necessarily. I think that's right. I mean, well, I would distinguish between saying what a lot of people think and telling the truth. Right, Oftentimes right, a lot of people 100%. think things that are not the truth. Um, but I don't think there's any doubt that one of the things that was restraining polarization for a long time was that like what we would call gatekeepers or right, elites or, or whatever you want to do it were, were holding different things back. And mm-hmm. sometimes what they were holding back was good, right? Like a flood of racism mm-hmm. at certain points in American history or a flood of fake news uh, mm-hmm. to, to hit it in a different direction. Sure. And sometimes they were holding back disagreements that the country wanted or even needed to have. I mean, to speak 
semi-positively about Donald Trump for a minute, the thing that he did was he basically broke apart what had become an almost cartel between the two parties to not fight about immigration. Mm -hmm. And people feel incredibly strongly about immigration. It's one of the most, not just polarizing, but motivating issues, not just in our country, but if you look across Western Europe, it's really in Mm -hmm. every country um, and in every sort of like political system like ours. And the Republican Party wanted to win over rising the rising generation of Hispanic voters. The Democratic mm-hmm. Party had become heavily Hispanic. So what you had was two, like the Republican Party was trying to become nicer on immigration and right. the Democratic Party is becoming more liberal on immigration. And here comes Donald Trump and he says, I don't think we should become nicer on immigration. I think we should build a wall. Right. And I think we should keep these people out and their rapists and murderers. And I don't think it's true. But definitely a lot of people thought that. Right, right. And so you then do talk about it. It's just you can't you get anything talk done. You can't You can't get But you oh, can't. But only being able to fight about something you can never resolve, that's a shitty place to be are, in. <laughs> except are some things not resolvable? That's, you know, you know, it's it, it just— One of the things I was thinking about, like, in that genre, sort of the Catholic Church and pedophiles, like that kind of the stuff that went on, mm-hmm. everybody said nothing, right? Or me too. Everybody agreed to say nothing and not talk about the hard issues. Is it just that people that through social media, and I do think the idea that everybody has a communications platform is fantastic and awful at the same time, yeah. which means everybody has a communications platform, is people are finally saying, you know, I'm mad as hell and I can't take it anymore. Kind uh, of let me say, let me, I want to I talk want to about social media tech. with yeah. you. Yeah. Let, so let's do that in one right. sec. But, okay. but I want to say this one other thing first, which is that I think a lot of issues are more polarizing when people are arguing and debating them than mm-hmm. once there's some kind of resolution in either direction. And, and a good example of this, I think, Medicare um, and basically every healthcare thing we've ever done was a super hard-fought battle. Took mm-hmm. a long time to do. Yes. And then at some point it's done. And then it's just there. I mean, even Obamacare for all of the Republican parties been going on a decade-long fight against it. They tried to repeal it and they couldn't. And mm-hmm. Obamacare has become reasonably popular. And it's, you know, a, it's a pockmarked law. But I think you see that a lot. I think that once if you can resolve things and resolve the actual underlying issues around them through policy, even if one side loses, the status people's status quo bias is often pretty strong. Mm-hmm. And so I think it can be a particularly tough position to be in where nobody can pass anything because then you're just forever fighting. Um, one of the things I, I talk about in the book too is that American politics is much more competitive now than it's ever been. We've never mm-hmm. had a period of time where – party control switches in Congress and the presidency this often yeah. and margins are this small. And that makes everybody feel like everything is a like a fight they absolutely need to win. Stake, yeah. Whereas, you know, for most of the uh, 20th century, the Democratic Party was pretty dominant. Um, if you like look at presidency and Congress together, before that the Republican Party was. And that meant that there was a kind of like a dominant party and then a secondary party that worked with them. And there are a lot of reasons you don't want that. You want a more competitive system, but it seems to have reduced some amount of the incentives to act like Newt Gingrich or Mitch McConnell, because if you didn't keep good relationships with a party that was in power, you couldn't get anything done, but also you weren't coming back into power anytime soon. So I kind of make this argument that, you know, if you think about political incentives, it's like, number one, get reelected. Number two, um, win back majority power. Number three, govern well. Mm -hmm. And like, that's kind of how politicians think. If number two isn't there, Right. right. If you can't win back majority power, mm-hmm. then get reelected and govern well actually means governing and compromise because at least then you can go back home and right. say, look, I may not be in power, but I got you this bridge. Right. And you should vote for me because, like, look how great that bridge is. But now right. you can't do that. Right. Right. So talk about the impact of social media because I think that's the newest thing mm-hmm. that's happened that seems to have taken the, the lid. It's blown the lid off of things yeah. sort of in a way that was slightly kept on and some in a negative way and some in a positive way. Mm-hmm. 
So I'd say the good part about social media, as you've been saying, is that it lets things get heard that weren't getting heard before. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, and, and I think a there. positive example of this, it was there. But um, I think that, you know, newsrooms would not have taken the events in Ferguson as seriously if they could not have seen on Twitter and on Facebook how much energy was around them, how much people cared. Um, I think part of why Black Lives Matter or Me Too and some of these other uh, movements have happened and have had real power is that social media basically broke the hammerlock of a small group of mostly white men editors deciding what counted as news and what didn't. So it, it can be very positive. On the other hand, and, and you know this stuff much better than me, social media, what it does is it reconstructs the format of human communication across the question of what, what is it that you can say that will generate the strongest emotional reaction yeah, in other people who agree with you? And it tends to be a little bit easier to do that negatively than positively. You can oh, sometimes do it through lots. inspiration, but— No, it's lots. Yeah, the numbers so are you know. very um, And so what you've just done is construct an incredibly polarizing foundation upon which human communication, but, but very importantly, political and media communication is going to happen. Mm-hmm. And so you've traded a scenario where you had the— upside of, like, you were trying to appeal to everybody, but the downside of, like, suppression and a limited number of gatekeepers and so on mm-hmm. for the a new scenario where you have the upside that almost everybody has a voice, but the downside is the part, even the part of your voice you are encouraged to use is itself polarizing. Right. Like, you were talking about the Wall Street Journal and how you had to mm-hmm. write things there. I was at the Post for a while, mm-hmm. sort of at the tail end of this era. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that is striking is that you could write the same idea as a news story, um, in which case you are quoting it through other people, sure. like you could write it as a news analysis, in which case you maybe said it, but you said it in a very bland, yeah, banal yeah, way. Then you go over to the op-ed page where you were able to like write it with the word I and like throw some elbows. And then like all the way over to Twitter where it's just like an emoji of a middle finger yeah. <laughs> and an act. <laughs> and so it's the same idea, but in one set of formal – like the, ori- the original formalism there is meant to uh, cut Slow down – Slow you down. Slow you down, but also it's meant to cut how polarizing the the article is because you don't want people to read it and say, I'm not represented to that. This person doesn't like me. This paper doesn't like me. I'm going to support a competitor. Mm -hmm. Where you go to the other side and you're trying to get somebody to share it on Facebook and they don't share something boring on Facebook. They share something on Facebook when they're like, yeah, Mm -hmm. like that shows what a jerk all these other people are. Right. And so how do you solve that? Because one is it's short. It's short and quick and Mm -hmm. fast and twitchy which means it appeals to sort of our id versus our superego, right? Like, oh, I'm just going to click. Like, it, it go, it's go, like gambling in a lot of ways. It's so, so impulsive, impulse-driven. Yep. And the second part is then gets fed not just on social, other social media. It does have that virality of it moves along, and therefore you get the dopamine high of yep. that. But you also then see it then reflected in regular media, first by cable, and then, then it trickles Well, in some ways around. it almost say cable predates it. So I I go through a bunch of – I think one of the really cool pieces of research I found in this book is by a guy named Marcus Pryor. Mm -hmm. And he was doing this research back – this was like 2002, 2003. So he was Mm -hmm. able to look at homes that did or didn't have cable. Um, And then obviously – and it was very early in sort of online news, so did or didn't have internet. And what he found – so he was interested as a political scientist in, okay, now people have access to so much more information Mm – so are they going to be more informed, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. we've just finally made it so you can know anything you want to know about American right. politics. Google knows everything. Are we actually going to be more informed? And the answer is no. But the reason the answer is no is super interesting. What he found was that uh, once you got cable and the internet, it moved from you absorbed political news 
just because it was there. Like maybe you bought a TV because you wanted mm-hmm. to watch I Love Lucy or a radio because right. you wanted to listen to music. But at some point, the news came on and you watched. Mm-hmm. So now it reconstructed it where it was all based on interest. Mm-hmm. And so the people who were less interested in the news didn't have to watch it anymore, and they didn't. They right. watched HGTV, whatever. MTV, whatever, right? right. And, but the people who were interested, they could get so much more. Right. And so now— So they're constantly being fed. So they're constantly being fed. But it turns out the reason people are interested is because they are polarized, because mm-hmm. they've chosen a side. So it's like— Eating, you're obese because you eat, and you eat because you're obese. I wouldn't. Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna not, yeah. not, not wander into that. But um, you, you know what I mean. Like, but it just it generates itself. Yeah, it generates itself. It's a self fulfilling feedback loop, and so that changes us too, right? I mean, go look at headlines, even in the New York Times now versus 20 or 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. When you're trying to appeal to a more polarized audience, you become more polarized. But then you polarize the audience. And mm-hmm. then you have to become more polarized, and then you polarize the audience more. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things I'm tracing, particularly in the back half of the book, is these feedback loops where as we become more polarized, we enter into these relationships where we polarize our institutions, the institutions polarize us, we polarize them more, they polarize us more, mm-hmm. and on and on and on down the line. Mm-hmm. So what happens then? Where do you where do you say? And then the last part, I want to talk about what we do about it, but w- then you end up with Trump. So Trump is the is the not the disease, but the— well, the outcome of the disease? One of them, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Trump is interesting because in a way, he's like a very good example of what you were saying earlier. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump himself is not that policy polarized. Like if you get him in a room, mm-hmm. he just doesn't care. Right, yeah. He would raise taxes on rich people or cut them just as long as he didn't have to pay it himself. Right. He used to talk about everybody getting health care. If you look at his older books, he says the Canadian health care system is really great. He's mm-hmm. like your uncle. You right. know, he's got some positions that are super conservative and some that are pretty liberal and doesn't like George he's W. Thoughtless. Bush but also doesn't like Barack Obama. But what he became is very polarized by affect. Like he knows who's on his side. He hates the elites who look down on him, ended mm-hmm. up hating the Democratic Party. So Trump, though, I think you have to understand him as a reaction to Obama. Like, they are Mm -hmm. twinned in a way. Mm -hmm. What we had was the demographics of America changed and the party identity of America changed such that Barack Obama could win um, election while winning a pretty small minority of the white vote. I always think this is an amazing stat. In 2012, Mm -hmm. Obama won a smaller percentage of white voters and Michael Dukakis won in 1988. And he won, right? Mm -hmm. So Michael Dukakis couldn't win the country on that coalition, but Barack Obama, you know, however many years later, he could. And so one of the things that that created, and there's, again, reams of evidence on this in the book, which everybody should buy, pre-order, whatever, is that that created this backlash. Um, That's part of why immigration was so powerful. Being terrified. Exactly. I call it white threat in a browning America. Mm -hmm. And so Donald Trump emerges as a Republican who will speak to that particular set of demographic anxieties. He comes out and he says what people like Rush Limbaugh and Bill O'Reilly and now Tucker Carlson and others are already saying, which is, you know, this country is changing. Mm -hmm. It is changing in a way that is going to hurt you. All these elites, they're fine with it, but I'm not. Mm -hmm. And so Donald Trump is a very disruptive force, but he's not – the way in which Donald Trump is conservative is not that he cares about taxes. He's conservative in a reactionary way. He cares about America not changing. He wants to have America be the way it was as he remembers it, make America great again. And so you don't get Donald Trump without Barack Obama. Um, Mm -hmm. He's not – Donald Trump is is like a – 
he is a symptom of polarization, but not in a way where Barack Obama isn't. Like the underlying force is the way the coalitions are splitting and so the fear they then engender in each other. These things are connected. They're like a, it's one system, not a bunch of operating in different ways. All right. We're here with Ezra Klein. We're talking about his book, Why We're Polarized. When we get back, we're going to talk about what we're going to do next and if there's any way back from polarization. I, I don't know another civil war. Who's to say? <laughs> um, when we get back, we're going to talk about that and more. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We're here with Ezra Klein. He's the co-founder of Vox and host of a fantastic podcast called The Ezra Klein Show here at Vox. And we're talking about his new book called Why We're Polarized, which is coming out. We talked about being polarized, but how do you get back from polarized? Can you do that? I do because not. Because I, I just did a podcast with my family, and literally it's all of us yelling at my mom. <laughs> you know, Sorry, I mean, you just did a podcast with, with my your family? family? Yes, I know. I don't know why I did it, but like whatever. We were talking about tech and politics and all kinds of stuff. And you just yelled at your mom? And, your and she yelled at us. You know what I mean? But it was like anything, any any basic day at our family. But it was interesting because you could, like one of the things she kept saying, which was fascinating, which I think creates polarization, is the facts. The facts are gone. She, My brother was saying something about climate change. She goes, well, that's your opinion. That, you know, that's the thing now. Everybody's like, that's your opinion. You're like, what do you do when the facts don't matter or that nobody can agree on facts? I'm a little less convinced that the facts mattered as much as people think they All right. did oh, other same. Oh, my goodness. I mean, fake news is not some new thing. Henry Ford ran the Protocols mm-hmm. of the Elders yes, of Zion in the Dearborn Independent, the paper that he owned. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that you had before wasn't that, like, all Americans smoked their pipe and, mm-hmm. you know, read peer-reviewed meta-literature no. studies. No. It was that there were gatekeepers. And, like, this is an uncomfortable thing. Like, and, and if you look at the end of my book, like, I'm somebody who's pro-more small-D democracy, not mm-hmm. less in general. Mm-hmm. But the reason that you couldn't have had a Donald Trump before, the reason that you could have, you know, Walter Cronkite telling you the way it is, mm-hmm. the reason Henry Ford and Father Coughlin um, oh, and— Notorious um, anti-Semite. And notorious anti-Semite, Both. Huey Long. The mm-hmm. reason they couldn't win the presidency was that— the voters couldn't vote them in. They had 20 or 30 percent in the same way Donald Trump did, mm-hmm. but they couldn't win a party convention. And the right. party convention is what made the decision. And so over a long period of time in ways both good and bad, but in some ways that are bad, we have cut all the gatekeepers. And so one of the things that, that has created is the ability for demagogues to rise up. There have always been demagogues who have sure come have. out and told people what they want to hear and have gone mm-hmm. popular based on that. But there have a lot of systems were set up to stop them. And on the downside, those systems could also be used to stop um, people who needed to be heard, people who are marginalized. Mm-hmm. But these things have their good and they have their bad. And something right. that I think we are very uncomfortable um, dealing with is the idea that some reforms that are good or that are connected to values that we care about, like, again, small-D democracy, mm-hmm. they can have some bad effects too. Now, look, if we were actually a democracy, Donald Trump isn't president, Mitch McConnell isn't Senate majority leader, and the Supreme Court, uh, you know, Merrick Garland's on it. So— you can go both ways in this argument, but— um, 
So what oh, we- there is not some perfect era of facts. There's an mm-hmm. era of gatekeepers, and a lot of those gatekeepers, for various reasons, had personal incentives that push them to care more about facts, or at least the way we remember so them now. So what do, push what them do you do when you have that state where people are absolutely not agreeing on anything? Like you literally can't agree on like if that's a ham sandwich at this mm-hmm. point. I I don't think there's an answer to that. To just be blunt about it. So what I think you can say is that. I can give you a bunch of systemic reforms that I think would make things better. I would mm-hmm. get rid of the filibuster. I would go to ranked choice voting. I would do a bunch of things I that I think are good ideas. Voting. It's great. The problem is that the level of gridlock polarization creates, that is also the obstruction to doing anything that would um, mm-hmm. make it easier to manage amidst polarization. So it's like you could think of the equation of two ways, right? One thing you can try to do is reduce polarization itself, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe we can all agree. Maybe we can have liberal Republicans again and conservative Democrats again and like kind of turn back the clock in some of the good ways, not the bad ones. Um, so the system will work better. I see absolutely no way you will do that. And while I know of a lot of people who are trying to do things on small scales, people, mm-hmm. like there's this small. Better Angels group, it, right. doesn't, it doesn't scale at all. No mm-hmm. late right? You know, all this stuff. Um, So that stuff doesn't scale and it doesn't really work. Um, So then on the other side, what you can do is make the system um, more manageable amidst polarization, um, more parliamentary, right? Mm -hmm. But the problem is you need to pass that somehow or change the constitution or so nobody knows how to do that. I will say that my biggest suggestion to people uh, that is like an actual actionable thing in your life Mm -hmm. is one of the things that has happened that has been a huge contributor to polarization is our politics have nationalized in an extraordinarily intense way. So I can give you like chapter and verse on this, but we used to be much more engaged in state and local politics. Our identities that were political sure, were, were much more state-oriented. Um, mm-hmm. There's a great study by Daniel Hopkins uh, where he shows that for a long time in American history, the phrase I am X, where X is a Californian, a Virginian, mm-hmm. you know, a state identity, it – that was more common in books than I'm an American. I see. And it's in post-1960 America that I'm an American takes the lead and never looks back. Yeah. Um, or sort of similarly, it used to be that state political parties, their conventions did not look like the national political party. You had like Oklahoma had a lot of Oklahoma issues and its own cleavages. It wasn't mm-hmm. the Oklahoma Republican Party convention and the National Republican Party convention are the same. Now they're all the same. And so one of the things that I think people can really do is – and I know this is like against interest for me a bit as a national political journalist, but I think it is a lot better to invest more of your time in the politics that are near you than to just spend all of your time following national politics and getting mad at things on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And that we're, we're like so connected in what, so many Ezra? ways to national what? political identities that we lose that state level and local level where we can do a lot more. It's a lot more nourishing to actually be doing mm-hmm. something you can change. Like your state representative will probably meet with you. Um, right. They don't get a lot of feedback. You can change their minds about things. Um, you know, you can organize, you can get so local bond ordinances state done. things that are right in your area. But then how do you create a national conversation? Because we are a country, uh, you know. My only solution is an alien invasion. I actually, I, I, if we you want to know my grimace. We man. This I is Ronald Reagan's all, view. Yes. Do you remember he used to say this to, to um, the Soviet Union uh, leaders? He'd say, but you agree that if there was an alien invasion, our people would band together. And <laughs> he, he was said, probably right. Ah, I think you can you know, make Putin a good would. argument. Putin would do a side deal with the aliens. If 
I hope that the way we get out of this is not that we go to war with China. Right. Right? Like, I think probably one one other reason that I don't play up in the book as much, mm-hmm. but I think is important, why we weren't as polarized in mid-20th century America was the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. That created pressure yeah, on an American enemy. identity, yeah. Yeah. and it had another an external enemy. enemy. We don't have an external enemy at that same level of no, threat I mean, now. No, going to get all And so a lot of our divisions that are internal have come more to the fore. Yeah, I don't see people going, ah, oh, the Chinese. Yeah, I can't even see, like, regular people. Like, right. maybe they could try it at a national level, but I don't think that would get people exercise. I think an alien invasion is our only hope. Yeah, well, so you can have an alien invasion, but you okay. can also, I mean, I'm I just waiting watched, for you people. I just watched here. Watchmen, and yeah. you don't really need aliens, right? Oh, if you true. just have smart fair, enough antiheroes, fair, you can fair. create a kind of squid-like like psychic blast that is a manufactured so, alien invasion. Seriously, I, all, all kidding aside, I do want an <laughs> alien invasion, but participate in local politics because you're not going to get rid of the pervasive national politics, especially when you have a personality like Trump. Is there just going to be an endless series? Uh, it's like Berskel, what's the guy in Italy? Berlusconi. Uh, I don't Berskel. think it'll be an endless series. I think it'll ricochet back and forth a bit. I think, um, look, we don't know who will win the Democratic primary at this point, but there's a very good chance that somebody like Joe Biden or mm-hmm. even somebody like Bernie Sanders does not want to polarize a country in the way Donald Trump does. Right. But these things are structural. Um, right. They will be more polarized. Donald Trump and, Jr. Yeah, you'll get Donald literally. Trump Jr., Josh Hawley or something. Right. And so, like, I want to be really clear about this. Like, what I've tried to offer in the book is a blueprint to how the machine works. Like, I think, like, as you said, like, I'm polarizing myself, but I think you can read this book and be on the right and be like, yeah, that's why the left has gone crazy, right? The, mm-hmm. the book is supposed to be a way of showing you how a bunch of interlocking systems have created this underlying polarizing dynamic. I don't think, and I hate this about political books, I don't think it has an answer right now. Mm-hmm. I think it's how things work. And we're going to muddle through and change it at the margins. And people are going to have to make a lot of different decisions at a lot of different levels. But I hate political books that spend this like a bunch of time like laying out an incredibly hard problem. Right, and then it's like, here solutions. are my six solutions. Right. <laughs> Talk about uh, something I know about tech. What should Twitter do? What should Facebook do? What should— I think that it is a genuinely bad thing to be reconstructing public communication based on the principle of emotional engagement. Mm-hmm. And— on the one hand— um, Fueled by advertising. Fueled by advertising. And data. But I, I even worry a little bit less. Like, I'm a little less convinced than people like—I'm uh, a big admirer of John Lanier, for instance, mm-hmm. but who I know has been on your show as well. Mm-hmm. But I think he is more confident than I am that if you move things to subscription or, or other things, that some of these incentives would go away. When I look at, like, say, the YouTube Patreon market, I don't see non-polarizing things. I mm-hmm. see, like, incredible, like— You've really got to pull people into a fight to the death against their enemies to get that kind of uh, big sign-up numbers. So I think that in general, um, when you have a crowded attentional market and you're fighting for people's engagement, the incentives push you to keep amping up the temperature, Mm -hmm. right, to like keep raising it. So like network, the the play and the movie network. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think that's right. And Mm so I think that if I were Mark Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg gave this speech a couple months ago at Georgetown. I was there. And he was talking, he like framed his defense of Facebook as a defense of free speech. But what Facebook does fundamentally isn't free speech. It's algorithmic speech. And paid speech. And paid speech. And so I think it would be good if the people who ran these platforms, particularly the ones who have an almost monopolistic like control, mm-hmm. right? They, Facebook could sacrifice some engagement on the margin, mm-hmm. begin to move it away from engagement. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know that they will, and I understand that they have Wall they Street and so on. But I, I don't yeah, think, I don't but think I it's, it's even a, a Wall Street. They don't really? think, no, listen to that speech. I literally almost stood up in this room. I was in the, at Gaston Hall at Georgetown and said, one 
you really needed to finish college because this makes no sense, like, from an intellectual point. It was so anti-intellectual, like, you sort of were, like, irritated by the argument itself. And two, I think they think they're they're right. They're, they actually think they're stupid arguments are right. That's the problem. I think that's, they don't want to meddle. I definitely, but I think that's because they have a lot of incentives to believe they're right. I mean, this is, again, mm-hmm. I have a whole chapter in the book about motivated reasoning, but, you know, what's the old Upton Sinclair line? There's nothing harder than getting a man to believe what his self-interest depends on him not believing. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's true for all these guys. I, I don't, look, Mark Zuckerberg, Jack Dorsey, they're all very, very smart. I think that, um, I don't think it would be possible for them to turn around and actually get to the point where they said, you know what, the world would be better off if people spend half as much time on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And it's precisely because they're smart that they will find the good arguments for the position they ultimately need to hold, which we all do. This is not a unique thing to them. Sure. This is all of politics. So what to do everything. then? What to do then? Because I do think it amplifies and weaponizes in ways that's never been. So, the removal of gatekeepers combined with these tools, combined with, you know, you know, I was talking to someone the other day about homelessness in San Francisco, and I've been living here for such a long time, and I'm like, Oh, we had homelessness. It's just amplified. And mm-hmm. I, I there's this is the I can see these are the six decisions that led to it. And if I don't know if there's well, a when solution. you're mayor. Yeah, when I'm mayor. You can undo but, those decisions. But, or maybe not. Maybe th- that's the thing. That when I think thing. about yeah. social media, I'm like, we're not going back. We're going forward. And so what do you do? Do you regulate it? Like the idea, I think either Biden or one of them is like, when we get back to normalcy, I'm like, we're not getting back yeah. to normalcy. Biden that's, says that all the time. Yes, but we're not. Yeah, like, we are not. We're not. Like, so what do we do with the state of—it's just like climate change. We're not getting back to a better planet. We're getting somewhere else, and maybe we can so, uh, invent I, I'd our say way a, out of it. I'd say or, a couple things. So, one, there's not going to be a good version of this. We are not mm-hmm. going to be at some moment where like, oh, actually everything's perfect now and solved. And on the 30- or 40-year time frame, there's going to be a lot of demographic change to mm-hmm. maybe say this in the polite way. A lot of people are going to age out of the electorate. Dead. Dead. Yeah. Um, and so— what it looks like when, like, millennials and not baby boomers control everything, mm-hmm. who knows, right? I, some I people like say it'll, a lot. <laughs> right? Some people say the only thing that makes me cautious is that people tend to get— uh, I always try to remember that baby boomers were the flower children, mm-hmm. and this is the world they have created. So mm-hmm. the fact that people are liberal and want to change the world now does not mean they will hold that as they get older. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nevertheless, I think demographic change can change a lot. We are going to become a much more racially diverse country. Uh, we're going to become a majority a majority minority country on like race in the next 30 years uh, or 20-some years, actually. And so that could have very unpredictable effects. So in 25 years, things may have changed a lot, not because somebody did something, but right. because we're in this kind of no man's land right now between where the old coalition had the power to control everything and where a new coalition has enough power that people have to, like, cater to it. Mm-hmm. And, like, we're having this conversation in California. California mm-hmm. went through a lot of this before. Mm-hmm. We had Pete Wilson. We had mm-hmm. Prop 187. We had all this. And then eventually California became so fully diverse. You can't win in California running right. a Trump-like strategy. You can't it's, just, be it's not possible. Demographics. So that, so that right, you can't be demographics long term. Although, but you, can you know, you can do it for a long time. Um, or you can have enough power at the Supreme Court and other things that you disenfranchise people, put in harsh footing rights acts. So I worry about that. I worry about the Republican Party's turn against small D democracy, mm-hmm. and you know how much you can actually do to. Uh, keep people from being able to participate in the political process or have their votes heard through gerrymandering and and, and other things. Uh, But then the other thing, you know, you're asking about the tech side of it. I don't think they're going to do this, but it is easy enough to do. You can turn down the fucking algorithms, Mm -hmm. right? It's not, like, this is not a 
conceptually hard problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You could decide that it isn't good the way it's working. I mean, I actually found one of the few things in tech that I've been, at least in social media tech, let me say it that way, that I've been optimistic on is the experiments that some of the players are doing with taking out visible social feedback uh, mm-hmm. mechanisms. So on Instagram, they've been experimenting in some areas with yeah. some people about not showing likes and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. People aren't going to like that, I think, or maybe mm-hmm. they will and I'm wrong, but I think that'd be much better. I think the social dynamics here are very, very toxic. I think that one of the things that is polarizing is that when the way you tell people to construct their rhetoric is see what you can say that's going to make people who already like you clap. Right. Like, I don't think that high school lunch tables are where you get the kindest versions of ourselves. And you could change that. Well, look at all of tech, and then I want to finish up talking. uh, One more question I have about this is, which of the companies is most problematic? If you had to pick one. I think in America, mm-hmm. right, because the global mm-hmm. scene is different. I think it is Twitter because I think Twitter is where the politicians and journalists mm-hmm. who co-create our political reality spend the most time. Mm-hmm. And so it is not it does not have the reach and centrality in people's lives of Facebook. But I think that fundamentally the rest of the made. country is being forced to respond to agenda setting that is happening on Twitter. Right. And I think Twitter is a very bad place for the agenda setting a- to happen. And the use of Trump for that, even governing, campaigning, and slash governing, slash whatever, it's meant to be polar. He's using it for It's exactly. meant to be polarizing, but it, it, it's also a way in which he is an off. I think that this is like the, the fundamental indictment of Twitter. People go back and forth on is it good or bad on that. But what mm-hmm. I would say about Twitter is that the— politician it created above any other is Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. And that should tell you something very concerning about its incentives. Like that, like, and I think it should, by the same token, Donald Trump didn't win because the people who are on Twitter voted for him. Twitter is disproportionately young and non-white. That is not what Donald Trump's Mm -hmm. coalition looks like. Donald Trump won because he used Twitter to set the agenda for every news organization in the country. Mm -hmm. And older people watch the news. And so I think that we in in the media, and this is something I explore a lot in the book and on my my podcast, I think we need to face up a little bit more to our role in all this Mm -hmm. and the way we have let Twitter lead us around by the nose. And not Twitter in the sense of Jack Dorsey, Twitter in the sense of our our incentives over there. Just today. And I think that we're in really bad shape in terms of recognizing that a lot of our power comes in agenda setting and choosing what to amplify and what not. Yeah. But if what we do is we just amplify the most well, of outrageous course, offensive things. Of course, their argument is he's the president. He's saying it. So we have the, to cover it. I hear you know, that more than— I, It drives me so crazy because I remember, I'm, as a somebody who's covered politics for more than two seconds now, mm-hmm. look, George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, they would beg— the press to cover a very carefully constructed Mm -hmm. speech on their manufacturing policy that was going to take place at Mm -hmm. an Ohio steel mill. That was actually a correct guide to where their manufacturing policy was going to go. I use an example on this all all the time that, do you remember there was a couple months ago a thing where Donald Trump was, I think he was attacking Ilhan Omar or other members of the squad and he said like, you know, go back to where you came, something like that. Yeah, yeah, that one. One of the really um, horrible, like, riffs he did on this. It happened on the White House lawn at, an event, at like a Made in America event. It was like the third annual Made in America event. And I'm going to get some details a, a little yeah. bit wrong in memory here, but but this is in broad strokes right. So here the White House had constructed this whole series of events, and it had trucks and helicopters mm-hmm. and munitions and yeah. all kinds of crazy things that they're trying to get made in America. And Donald Trump gave this long rambling speech about manufacturing policy and the economy and unemployment. We didn't cover any of it. We mm-hmm. didn't cover a word he said in any of that. Mm-hmm. 
It was only when he said something offensively racist that we covered it. It is not the case. It is not the case that we cover everything the president says. Mm -hmm. What Donald Trump understands is the way to hack our coverage is to say something offensive, Mm -hmm. outrageous, racist, something sometimes just flagrantly wrong because Mm -hmm. then we will fact check it, but we will spread the underlying idea. And we are totally defenseless against that. Yeah, it's not defenseless. It's fascinating. I had some reporter, big news, like, can you believe he said that? I go, yeah, I can believe it. Like, he's doing it on purpose. Like, don't you, like, it's literally like a kid throwing, like, poop at your face yeah, exactly. all the time. <laughs> like, stop the kid from throwing poop at your face. Right. Donald people. Trump, in a way, understood what newsworthy meant better than we did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, interesting. And he and other people are so, figuring that out, too. So, last question. What then has to happen? What, you don't think, you don't know. You just don't know. You're, you're going to leave with, you don't, I don't let know. Let me put it this way. I do, I know. Now you're what, saying why, but I I know what an agenda will look like. I Mm -hmm. do not know how you will get it done. Mm -hmm. Because as I was saying earlier, people are kind of acting reasonably rationally. So I don't know how you get the set of political reforms that would make the political system work better through a Congress that can't pass anything or through a constitutional convention that you can't get states to so hold. It, so in your view, it's not a fever the way, say, the Salem witch no. trials were or McCarthyism, you could no, say. No, it's a structure. It's a system. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of individual people are going to have to make better decisions over a long period of time. I think the underlying structure of the country will change. And I do think there are ways to live within it better and worse. I mean, we were talking earlier, but I think understanding the dynamics of polarization help you think about strategy for something you want to pass. You actually don't want, if you need to get votes from the other side, to escalate something to the fever pitch of conflict. Yeah, you want to do things a little bit like behind the scenes, a little bit in back rooms, a little bit covered up, not covered up, but you want to do it where it has not become a huge element of conflict. Um, I was thinking in 2015, they passed this very big, what was a reform and reauthorization of No Child Left Behind. Mm -hmm. It's very, very hard to do. And that was at a very polarized time. And they did it because they managed to keep it a very complex process. Barack Obama didn't make it a big campaign issue for him. So he gets no credit for it. Nobody's like, ah, you did such a great job of that No Child Left Behind reauthorization. Um, The reason it passed in part is because the Obama administration by the end began to understand this. They would fight on things where they weren't passing. But when something could pass, they often stayed pretty quiet. They were pretty quiet when the immigration bill was going through in 2013 in the Senate. It didn't end up passing the House, but that's why it passed the Senate. They let Marco Rubio and John McCain get a lot of credit as opposed to them. I think Congress should stop being such a bunch of wimps. And I think that they, like, the individual people in Congress need to begin acting like they have some power. Yeah, they don't. Um, There's no reason the leadership can control everything in the way they do. There are a lot of things that could pass on ad hoc coalitions, Mm -hmm. but they don't get brought to the floor. But you know what? If key members of the Senate and of the House said we are not going to vote for any more judges until we change the rules so we can bring our bills to the floor, they would win that fight. And they don't because either they don't want to, they're worried about the blowback, or they suck, um, which is often the case. All right. So I'm going to ask one last question. I know you don't want to talk about people, but is there some politician or someone or public figure that you look to that you think, okay, that's a way out? Is there is that... no individual who is going to be or can be a way out. Right. Like, I, I want to say that super clearly. It right. is the biggest mistake we make again and again. We keep looking for some savior to ride on down the hills, and mm-hmm. then it's Barack Obama or it's Donald Trump. And then a couple years later, it's like, oh, it turns out that now they're just part of the system too. Systems beat individuals. Individuals can work to change them. That's great. People should try. Um, I'm trying. That's why I wrote the book. But the idea that there is some politician, 
they will ultimately have to work within the system. They will have to pass bills through this system. They will have to get media coverage in this system. So there is not a way to do it that is just one person. Like, we have to think about changing the rules of the game. Otherwise, ultimately, people are going to play it the same way. All right. Ten years hence, 10, 15 years hence, what is the—Donald Trump's considered the most polarizing president. Will there be an even more polarized president? I, I think He'll we be might gone. be. I He'll think we be might gone. be reaching a level where you like literally mathematically can't get much more polarizing <laughs> than this. I don't, I don't know that it's actually possible. I mean, maybe I guess you could imagine Donald Trump being even more polarizing if the economy bottomed out or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it's like it's narrow. I mean, he's got something like ninety percent Republican approval rating and ten percent so Democratic. Allegedly, it's that's like nothing. Been the question, um, so where are we ten or fifteen years from now? I. Worst-case scenario and best-case scenario, and that's where we'll finish. Worst-case scenario is that we've had much more, either more fundamental divides erupting or caused by politics in this country that are now being escalated to the point where we do begin to have real, real violence. violence in the streets, that kind of thing again. Or similarly, and I think you could say we're having this on climate change now, but it can happen in more fast-moving ways. Sure. So the get-a-gun um, Something strategy. that is so— get a, Uh-oh, get-a-gun. Well, that, but also, um, like, there's a question of civil unrest, and there's a question of crises that we cannot respond to, like a pandemic flu, that mm-hmm. kind of thing, where because we've not been able to come up with an effective f- a policy response quickly, mm-hmm. huge, huge, huge levels of suffering um, follow. I think the, the more optimistic version is that it's not that there is a fever to break, but that we begin to figure out how to manage some of the things that are new to this. So social media, I think there's at least a cultural understanding that there are problems in it. I do think the media is getting better at recognizing the way it's a little bit manipulated. I think reporters are better about, you know, not responding to every single tweet and so on in the way they used to be. I could imagine something where um, I don't think it is impossible to imagine members of Congress beginning to reassert some control and autonomy. Mm -hmm. Um, That has happened many times in our history before. It's unclear when and why it happens, but it could happen at any moment. Mm -hmm. And look, like, I think it's possible 10 or 15 years from now that Texas is fundamentally blue. Mm-hmm. And you don't need a huge change in the dynamics right now. Let, let me end on this point because I do think it's actually an optimistic point. One of the things that you have to kind of figure out for why the system looks the way it does is why are the Democratic and Republican parties different? Um, they're both subject to some of the same forces. Why have Republicans become the party of Donald Trump and Democrats have not done that? Mm-hmm. And I think the answer is that Republicans – are not disciplined by diversity and democracy in the way Democrats are. Republicans have been winning on a very homogenous coalition Mm -hmm. with a minority of the population behind them. If Republicans couldn't win with a minority, if they needed to win, like, center-left voters in the way Democrats need center-right voters, if winning a minority of the vote didn't get them the Electoral College, they would change. They would Mm -hmm. reform themselves to win power again. You see this in blue states, right? The most popular governors in the country are Republican governors in Maryland and Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. So the Republican Party can compete in in a more fair way. And so I think that the like the optimistic version is the demographics tip in a couple key states yeah. such that Republicans can't run this winning land but not people strategy anymore. Mm-hmm. And that f- triggers a series of like underlying reforms and changes yeah. in the party so it can become competitive again. And Democrats and Republicans like settle into not anything that people can be like, 
hallelujah, we live in utopia. Then we'll get back to fighting about the other things. But we can get back to having more normal political fights and to some degree more normal political compromises. Right. And so therefore we stop liking George Conway. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't see see the George Conway drive-by coming there at all. (laughs) Uh, Well, you know, I like George Conway, but I shouldn't um, because it was pointed out to me the other day. It's like they weren't nice to us before. Now they're our friends. Like I'm like, well, that's how war goes, I guess. I don't know. Strange bedfellows coalitions are are fine. Anyway, Ezra, this is really great. I urge everybody to read it. He doesn't know what to do about our polarization, but he knows why we're polarized. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Eric Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Ezra, where can people find you online? Oh, I am on Twitter, unfortunately, at Ezra Klein, the but Twitter. they should come uh, subscribe to the podcast, the Ezra You're Klein Show. very good on the Twitter. Um, if you like this episode, we'd really, I'm adding baby pictures in so people don't know what's happening. Sometimes <laughs> I insult people. Sometimes there's baby pictures. I think you don't do that, right? You don't put your baby pictures in. No, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm much more private. You're not a Sharon like I am. Anyway, if you like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you share it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Pivot, Reset, Recode Media, and Land of the Giants, along with all of Ezra's podcasts, of which there are many. Just search them in your podcasting app of choice or tap a link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Friday. Tune in then. <laughs>